Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome listeners to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I am sitting with Andrew Ginter. He is the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you? Hello, Nathan. I'm doing very well, thank you. Our guest today is Matthew Llewellyn. He is the Executive Inventor at Cybotti. I caught Matthew at the Department of Homeland Security's Industrial Control System Joint Working Group Fall Meeting, also known as the DHS-ICS-JWG. Matthew's topic today is Industrial Security Education. All right, let's get into it. So Matthew, uh, Cybody is all about education. Can you talk about where you're coming from? You know, what do you do? What's your focus? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, at Cybody, again, being focused on hands-on education. Uh, cyber physical systems really require that hands-on element. And then the goal around it is understanding more about cybersecurity risks and defenses we follow really a three-part model in trying to introduce these core concepts within our educational content. And that model is build, break, and secure. So we try to ensure that we can have model environments that you can automatically and dynamically build through our wizards. And then in that environment, you're then able to try to you know, understand how the vulnerability works that's being exploited inside of it to then realize why you need to secure it a certain way. Uh, what we found over time is there's a lot of requirements that are out there within different industries, and there's a lot of, of great standards to follow to meet those requirements, but sometimes there's difficulty in interpreting exactly what is trying to be conveyed as far as what the risk is. And it's a lot easier to understand what that risk is when it's demonstrated right in front of you. Um, so originally, uh, back in 2010, uh, when Cybody was first started, uh, I was just coming fresh out of uh, actually selling a consulting firm that was dealing with NERCSIP version 1 and version 2 compliance and helping the electric sector uh, with education. And since then, I mean, really, it's, it's any vertical that has critical infrastructure or cyber-physical systems that we go into. And not only the vertical and the current employees, it's even the pipeline of people that we are trying to influence. So, for instance, over the past year, We've been working hard uh, with the Department of Energy and their CyberForce competition, uh, where they now are going to have 105 universities at 10 national laboratories competing against red teams as they actively defend their environments. And then from that, a lot of those uh, universities and even in the future community colleges, they use our platform to help educate their students within those degree programs to understand how to defend environments. And then ultimately, those students become part of the pipeline to professionally defend real systems. All right, let's, let's stop here for a moment. What I'm hearing, Andrew, is that um, Matthew is focused on education and he has this sort of vast infrastructure to address it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Matthew's and, and Saibati's uh, infrastructure uh, that he demonstrated at the, at the DHS show was really very impressive. Uh, it's interesting to see that, that uh, universities are picking up on his infrastructure. I think the, the, the point of it is, and it's a point I've made many times, is that to understand security, 
really you need to understand the attacks. And one of the ways to understand attacks is to have the technology in front of you and use some of these tools and see firsthand what's possible in terms of the the bad guys coming after us. So uh, this seems to be the whole point. It's interesting to see that that, uh, universities are starting to use his infrastructure in in their programs it's really uh uh you know an impressive looking resource uh that that he had set up at the dhs there and uh you know it it sounds it seems to me like something that would add a lot of value to the you know perhaps more more uh academic uh approach of 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 the universities so to a novice like me what does this infrastructure look like that you're describing well, what I saw at the at the show was a, a long table. It might have been, I don't know, eight or ten feet long, with equipment from one side, one end of the table to the other, um, and then a uh, a projector showing up on a big, you know, eight foot wide, six foot tall projection screen. There might have been six windows open, sort of tiled on the uh, on the thing. Each of them showing it, you know, part of it showing a control system, part of it showing an attack sequence. It was there was a lot of stuff there. So, uh, again, uh, you know, very very hands on. And and to his point about cyber physical, uh, it only makes sense it that that you know you can see uh, some of the physical equipment, some of the, the 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 physical connections to try and make sense of of how it all works. Recently, uh, as in the summer of this year, uh, we even had our platform uh, a version of it at the uh, Scouts World Jamboree held in West Virginia, where 40,000 Scouts between the ages of 14 and 18 uh, descended upon West Virginia. And uh, they were from 170 countries, and they were able to go through and use our new version of what we're calling these mission cards. And what we found from that new model is that these mission cards that are very specifically function-oriented, very specifically task-oriented, let's say, understanding cyber-physical data flows, understanding controlling a point uh, remotely or sensing a point remotely over a network connection, and potentially the vulnerabilities that come along with that and the defenses you need to put in place to make sure that that's authentic data, the data hasn't been manipulated, and in some regards, sometimes confidentiality, but it really depends on the environment. As we know, our cyber-physical systems are different and how we have to be thinking about uh, defending them specifically with integrity and authentication first. But what we found at that World Jamboree for those 14 to 18-year-olds is they really appreciated those succinct, very specific missions that, you know, they, in that case, it was just looking at data flows and protection of these cyber-physical systems. We then moved uh, that environment over to DEF CON this year, and we added some more professional missions from our our courses that we've been offering for a number of years, including things like man-in-the-middle attacks, uh, using ARP spoofing and edder filters and edder cap, or even looking at some of the vulnerabilities within embedded devices and logic controllers that exist, or maybe some commands don't require authentication where they should or even a lot of the access that you get mechanically in these devices if you have administrative rights or just gain network access. 
So we went through the same type of mission cards there. Again, pretty successfully, we were able to show a lot of different specific vulnerabilities and defenses to encourage why you need to put in endpoint protection, network security services, data flow restrictions, and then ultimately know that just putting in the control is not enough because somebody can start manipulating an environment and you have to be able to detect it and respond in a fast enough fashion and an accurate response. And so that's that secure aspect. So we started talking about those three different pillars that we follow, build, break, and secure. We were just focusing on break. Well, now the secure aspect comes in where you know we're an educational company. We provide education around understanding the type of vulnerability to then match up with the defenses that then, just like here at the ICSGWG, there's plenty of vendors, just like yourself at Waterfall, that have great solutions that can come in to go and, and, and put in, whether it's endpoint, whether it's something within the network, whether it's data flow restrictions, whether it's something uh, thinking about your contractors or more requirements-driven or more procedural-driven. All of these are part of the solution. But again, going back, what we found is sometimes there's a lack of understanding of the actual requirements and the standards themselves, and so they're misinterpreted until somebody starts seeing the actual types of vulnerabilities that they're defending themselves from, and they actually see them in practice. They see the logic being deleted within a device. They see all of a sudden now the process they have to go through of uploading new logic on that system through their document repository or management system where it has the logic inside of it. They go through that process. And so our goal uh, as an educator is experiential-based learning where we have applied environments that you're able to go and step through. Typically, when I think about man in the middle or when I conceive of it, it's that sort of classic example of you're sitting in a coffee shop, you're browsing the internet, not realizing anything's wrong. And because you're on public Wi-Fi, some hacker at another table is intercepting your connection. Um, Is this uh, equally of concern in the ICS industry? And if so, um, are the solutions that apply to IT man-in-the-middle attacks sufficient for um, when they apply to industrial systems? The short answer is yes to all of the above. Um, Matthew mentioned ARP spoof and EdderCap. These are tools used on local area networks to carry out man-in-the-middle attacks uh, as opposed to the the kinds of tools you'd use on a a Wi-Fi connection. Uh, For anyone non-technical, man-in-the-middle is where a third party is listening into conversations or is injecting commands into an existing conversation. Uh, You know, let's say the conversation is between your web browser and a bank. And, you know, an attacker injects a command like transfer a large sum of money into the attacker's bank account. We want to avoid this. Um... You know, to, to Matthew's point uh, about the need to understand attacks in order to correctly defend a system, uh, you know, uh, the standard defense against man in the middle is encryption. You might read a, a security standard and it might say you have to encrypt all connections to uh, programmable logic controllers, to the PLCs. Um, you know, we might imagine that if we encrypt the message stream, then it's impossible to interpret any captured messages. It's impossible to insert correctly formatted messages into that stream. Uh, So a defender might say, look, the standard says everything has to be encrypted. Let's buy a product that talks to the device out one side and talks SSL or TLS encrypted connections out the other. TLS is the the same encryption that we use when a, a web browser connects to a bank, to a website. We might imagine 
TLS is secure. It's encrypted. It solves the man-in-the-middle attack, right? Well, no, it doesn't. The simplest man-in-the-middle does not even need a connection uh, you know, between, let's say, a, a SCADA system and a PLC. It doesn't need a connection to intercept. The simplest man in the middle just has the attacker connect to the PLC and start giving the PLC commands as if the attacker were the SCADA system. What value does the vanilla web-type uh, TLS encryption layer add? Well, it means no one can see what commands the attacker is sending to the PLC. The attacker is still sending commands to the PLC because the web browser style TLS does not need a password. I mean, when you connect to your bank, your browser first sets up the encrypted connection before the bank challenges you for a password. So if the PLC has no accounts and no passwords, then the encryption layer that you added to your architecture lets the attack the PLC over an encrypted connection. It hasn't bought you anything. Now, for the record, you can configure TLS so that the TLS connection controls who's allowed to connect to it using, uh, you know, encryption keys um, so that an attacker can't just plug in their laptop, open a connection and start sending. But that's not the default configuration. So, yes, it's very important to understand how these attacks work in order to select the right defenses in order to configure the right defenses to address the attacks, not just do what you think the standard has told you to do and and, and find a way to, I don't know, encrypt everything. Start with the mundane. I mean, I, we're, we're here at the, the, the DHS ICSJWG event. I walk down the hallway. I see your table. There's a lot of equipment there. You know, do you do you bring this equipment to your training? Is it is it hands-on? Are you dragging this around the, 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 the country? How much how much? How big are your boxes? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely has to be some passion involved to want to do this type of hands-on training. Uh, I mean, you know, the number here I think is about 400 pounds of equipment that we brought in. Um, we keep trying to shrink it, make it be easier, make it be simpler to set up, tear down. Um, TSA always seems to do some pretty good drop tests on everything. You know, when things show up, you know how well it's going to work. Um, but in the end, I mean, just even at this conference, when I see somebody going by, I mean, we're providing right now free training. I mean, so we have these mission cards. They're here. People can sit down. They can do it. And when I see them understand what's happening, then it makes it all worth it. You know, so in the end, we, we for us to stay around as a company, we have to have a profit in revenue streams. I mean, that's definitely a part of it. But, uh, you know, the... Uh, the realism is it's worth it to have hands-on equipment, and it, it needs to be just in more places, right? And, it, and carting it around is not the only answer. It needs to be not just one time, one event. It needs to be something where you can be immersed in it more often. You've got a lot of stuff there, you know, 400 pounds. Um, you talked about, you know, build, break, secure. You talked about build first. What are you building? Have you got, you know, I don't know, Wonderware stuff there? Have you... what? What does it mean to build first? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. So let me just go back just briefly to give a, a basis. Um, in 2010, when I sold the consulting firm, I personally was in a, real, a realistic state or a state of concern of, well, what's happening within cyber physical systems and what's going to happen in the future. So basically, candidly, I took the money for selling the company and I built out a cyber physical laboratory. So that money for me at that time was $1.5 million. I bought software, 
hardware, you name it. So then you can come back and say, all right, well, Matt, who was the team of people that worked on that? Canly, that was myself. I set it all up. I built it all up. I broke it down. I found vulnerabilities. I found defenses. And it was a variety of equipment. Well, one of the things that came to the conclusion of, which I pretty much wish that I would have done it prior to spending $1.5 million, was that, I mean, these vulnerabilities transcend vendors. You don't necessarily have to go vendor to vendor to vendor to find these categories of vulnerabilities. We all suffer vulnerabilities. That's just the reality, and we have to understand that as a vendor of any product, that we all have these categories of vulnerabilities. As an asset owner and operator, everything has this vulnerability, whether it's today or two years from now. It's going to get discovered at some point. So you defend against the categories of vulnerabilities not just the fact that you have the vulnerability that's been known yet. So what we brought with us are things that emulate those devices, things that emulate the protocols, or actually they're actually the protocol libraries that we get into it. And so we're able to demonstrate the same types of attack surface and defenses as you would have in your real environments through our emulated environments. Can we go back and use the real equipment and the real software to do the same thing? Absolutely. But we found that really for this type of education, it's unnecessary for 90% of the effort. There's still a 10% of the effort of the actual equipment that your people are working with, that you need as an owner, operator, or integrator, that you still need that education. But to demonstrate why it's valuable to put in these different controls, why it's valuable not to use flash drives in certain situations or to follow procedures on how you move data between point A and point B or how you have backups of your logic and how it can be manipulated, the vendor doesn't necessarily matter anymore. Build, break, and secure the break part. Um, I can remember back in the day, this, you know, this was, I think, the late 80s, the early 90s. Uh, you know, my alma mater, the University of Calgary, had uh, a course on IT cybersecurity, and they ran into controversy because they were teaching their students how to write viruses on the premise that you have to know how the bad guys are doing their stuff in order to be able to design effective defenses. You're talking about breakage. It sounds like you're teaching people to attack control systems. If you ask me, that's the right thing to do. But, you know, has the industry got over this, it's a bad thing to teach attack techniques? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a really powerful question, and everybody really needs to think through this. So one you have to understand the vulnerabilities and how they work to be able to accurately defend against it. Uh, you also have to assume the adversary is already doing its teachings uh, against us, right? And so as defenders, if we don't stand up to understand how these vulnerabilities are being exploited and literally just downloading code from GitHub that's already readily available and then using it to then demonstrate things, I mean, it's not necessarily that we're writing from scratch. It's just that we're using things that are already readily available in ways that show that these vulnerabilities exist. So it just goes back to the story. The ecosystem has changed around our critical infrastructure and cyber-physical systems. We may have put them in you know, decades ago and updated them over the past five to ten years in certain ways, but the Internet's formed. People are sharing more information in different ways. The world has changed around it, and so now we have to adapt as defenders to use those same tools that the adversaries are already using against us. But we have to use them in a positive fashion to understand the vulnerability so we can accurately defend against it. So, Nate, the, you know, the interesting bit that I heard there, um, 
whenever I've put, you know, little bits of my own training together, I try to put together test scenarios so people can, you know, touch something and learn something, you know, hands-on. I've always used emulators because that's all I, I could afford in the, the context that I was teaching. I know a lot of other uh, instructors, a lot of other uh, educators do the same thing. They use a lot of emulators. I thought it was interesting to hear uh, Matthew here say, look, I've spent a million and a half on the real stuff. I put it all together and discovered that you don't need it. <laughs> the emulators do 90% of the job. So, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting to get that that validation from someone who'd, who'd spent a lot of money learning that lesson that, uh, you know, it's not just that the emulators are cheaper. It's that um, you don't you don't actually need the real stuff most of the time, you know he implied that you need it some of the time, but it, it's, it's reassuring to, to hear that. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Okay. So to my ear, what Matthew's talking about sounds fine in theory, but could you give me an example, Andrew? Sure. Uh, a very common attack technique is called pass the hash. Uh, this is something that works on windows machines. It's a very old attack. The problem is this very old attack continues to work even on the most modern machines. If you go to uh, repositories of, you know, security testing tools and attack tools, demonstration attack tools, so people understand the capabilities of the bad guys, um, past the hash tools, there's, I don't know, there's, a, there's at least a dozen of them out there. Past the hash capabilities are built into every one of the bad guys' attack frameworks. The most sophisticated tools out there all have this ability. Um, very briefly, for anyone not familiar with it, uh, when you enter a password on a Windows machine and it goes to, let's say, a domain controller and and uh, says, is this password right? When the domain controller comes back and says, yeah, yeah, the password's right, it gives you a credential called a hash. The, the credential has a cryptographic hash built into it. It gives you a credential that you can then use on other machines so that you don't have to enter your password for every machine that you log into on the domain. This is single sign-on. Um, the cache, uh, sorry, the, 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 this credential, this hash is kept in memory. If you know where to look for it, and these tools do, they go and can gather these hashes out of the memory, out of the registry, out of wherever they're stored. And now with this credential in hand, you can give commands to other machines as if you were the user. The bad guys can do this because they have the credential. And in fact, these credentials can be stored on machines for a period of time. So you might land on a machine with your malware, the, the, the attack framework looks around, finds hashes for six different users, one of which is the domain administrator. Wow, now we've, we've just escalated privilege. We have the domain administrator's credential, their hash, and we can give commands to other machines on the domain as if we were the administrator. So this is, this is a very powerful attack capability. And I don't know. When when I was introduced for the, the the first time years ago, when I saw it in action, when I gave the command myself, and I went, "Oh crap! I can actually do this. This is horrible." You know, I was appalled that this was possible. But it's vital to understand that this is possible. It's vital to see how easy it is to do. This is why it makes sense to teach people. In you know, in, in Matthew's point, at least the publicly available tools. Um, you got to teach people how to use this stuff so that they know what they're up against. Otherwise, they're you know they're shooting in the dark in in, in my books.
your third pillar, you know, build, break, secure the the, the secure part. The it, it sounded like your mission card concept was tied up in there. Can you talk some more about the mission cards? How does that work? Yeah, so the mission cards uh, have come to be because there's been a lot of requests about being more specific about what you're trying to cover as a topic. Everybody has limited time as we're trying to, to navigate, really defending these environments, really trying to make sure things are operationally up but only specific things that they may not understand and so, or they may need to be validated on. So the mission cards are designed to be no more than 15 to 20 minutes in length and they have very specific core concepts that they cover. So, you know, I, I talked about the, um, uh, the 14 to 18 year olds at the, at the beginning of the pipeline of per- personnel coming into our environments. There, we focused just on understanding cyber-physical flows and systems. Uh, we used uh, something that's natively inside the Raspberry Pi being Node-RED as these functional flows. Uh, and it's very similar to functional logic that we have in our, in our legitimate critical infrastructure and control systems. Uh, and then we had the ability where they were transferring data in the clear, and they captured it. They could see it. And then they would go through the process of encrypting it so that they would intentionally, you know, they would start knowing that only intentional security exists. You know, without you doing something, assume vulnerable, assume eavesdropping. And so that was the simple start. But even, you know, even that start for a lot of people, they don't understand cyber physical systems. If I take somebody with a traditional IT background, they may not be thinking about how these sensors are being used within our algorithms that we're trying to defend. I mean, we have to figure out what that algorithm is of our control system so we can go and defend it. So some of the more, you know, later missions, we get into understanding what's a state machine, right? So, and specifically, we use our mini kit traffic light boards where we load in the state machine of a traffic light intersection. And it's written uh, in a combination of, uh, of no red and Blockly, which is uh, another uh, easier programming language to understand. It even ties into some of the, the youth and trying to have that pipeline. Um, but state machines are interesting as you're thinking about unions and joins and trying to figure out how that traffic light intersection works. And a lot of people just don't think about it, right? They, as they're driving a car, they think about the red light and the green light, and that's really it. You know, I know definitely any engineer listening to this, yeah, you've thought about it, and you know discrete mathematics, and you know PID loops, and you had your first PID loop decades ago or whenever it was, and it was like, oh, my gosh, right? You had a, a good lesson learned. But we have, we have to make certain that the people of the future can also defend this, and the IT teams understand and respect some of that logic. Flip side, on the engineering side, well, what could happen if somebody could manipulate uh, those sensor values on the loop, right, on the milliamp loop or potentially on the network connection. And so we have another mission card that quickly shows uh, HMI values being read remotely, uh, actually using a Raspberry Pi sense hat uh, as one example, but it doesn't really matter where they're coming from. And then uh, Edder cap and Edder filters uh, doing an ARP spoof and a man in the middle and then changing the values. So, you know, there you can start thinking about, well, now you need to understand your data flow. You need to understand, is it a protected data flow? Are you using wireless? Are you using 900 megahertz wireless? Are you using 2.4 gigahertz wireless? Are you using wired and that's protected cabling? All of that, just be thinking about the flow and are your sensed values valid and is there a way that somebody could manipulate them? So each one of these mission cards are very specifically oriented to be 15 to 20 minutes to at least understand the core concept so then you can start thinking about how you'd either defend it or, again, some of the missions are the defense uh, that you put in place. And and then start realizing maybe you're going to dig in deeper or maybe you already understood it and you want to go and share that mission with somebody else. But they're very succinct and very specific as far as what they cover. 
So Nate, if if I could, you know, Matthew gave some some very specific examples of of mission cards there. If I could pull it back maybe to the the, the higher level, um, I taught for a couple of years at uh, Michigan Tech University. When I you know when I finished there, they were in the middle of a transition to, in a sense, a new way of teaching. They were piloting, they were, you know, taking a, a, a fraction of their courses and converting them to video. Why? Well, because the modern student has a cell phone, has laptops, they're used to consuming video content. And the goal was to take, basically to, to stop having the, uh, a professor stand at the front of a lecture theater and give the same lecture for the same course, course after course, year after year, uh, and have the students sit there listening to them. They were going to use the class time to be more interactive, questions and answers and exercises. And they were going to take the, the content and say to the prof, um, you know, stand at, at your, your whiteboard, do your presentation and video the presentation. And they were going to video this in maximum 20-minute chunks. 10 to 20 minute chunks. It seemed to me corresponding to this mission card concept. They want to break up the content into small chunks so that when you've got 20 minutes, you can listen to it and be done with it, not commit to a 75 minute lecture that, you know, that you've got on video or something. A second benefit of the mission cards is that this content, I mean, at universities, you, you, you go to university not because, you know, you want to learn the same thing your parents did 30 years ago. You want the latest and greatest. And so you expect the content to evolve. And with a mission card, with these, these short chunks of content, it's just easier to manage the evolution because year after year, some of the content is going to change. Some of these video segments or, you know, chunks of content are going to have to be updated and re-recorded and, you know, renewed, but the rest of them can stay the same. So, uh, you know, what I heard here is that, you know, this is another example of really the, the, the modern approach to education. You've touched on this a couple of times. Um, you know, there's IT people, coming to your, your training, there's operations engineers coming to your training. The operations people already know certain stuff. The IT people already know certain stuff. They need to learn a different thing than the operations people, presumably. Do you have different courses? How do you deal with that? Yeah, another excellent, hard question to address. Um, and very important, though. So you get into the lexicon, right? You get into the language. You get into the challenges and misinterpretations. You get into the different backgrounds that you have in working in these environments. And, and that specifically is what our, our original course was tailored for starting back in 2010. So we have our industrial edition kits where we have these pods of equipment. And the pod is designed to have two people work at each one of these stations. And it was intentionally designed that in the first day of that course, you are actually building a control system environment with an HMI, with an OPC server, with functional logic. Uh, and then we even show some vulnerabilities associated with it. And the intent is for the IT person to feel a little ignorant and the OT person to feel a little ignorant all at the same time. You know, you have your areas where, yeah, I understand uh, ladder logic and functional logic. The process engineer is going to go in and do that. But then the IT person is going to say, wait a minute, you're telling me a one can be false 
right? Because all of a sudden, it's all about how you're interpreting the logic, right? Examine if closed, examine if open. And so that becomes confusing. And then you flip it around on the other side, and then we show a vulnerability just as something as simple as a ping of death that occurs that causes a logic controller to, to not operate as intended. So, I mean, those are the, the simple baselines, but what becomes valuable is everybody can realize how important their role is and not just to conflict with each other. I mean, the other um, role that we have in our class sometimes is going to be physical security. So really it's that triad of information security, of the operational engineering security, and physical security that wraps around the whole thing to defend the environment. Now, when I was talking to Matthew, um, I didn't catch you know all of our conversation on the recording. I remember him talking about um, this this uh, this concept of different kinds of people taking the course. He was saying that whenever he can, you know, if I recall correctly, he was saying whenever he can, he he pairs people because you know some of the hands-on exercises are fairly technical, and if you if an individual gets stuck. Well, they don't make any progress. If you have two or three eyes looking at the screen, you can often make steady, steadier progress. And what he said was that when he has the opportunity, he will try to pair different kinds of people, you know, technical people with non-technical people, IT people with OT people, OT people with physical security people, um, so that you can get not just steady progress, but you get these people exposed to each other. They're exposed to each other's ways of seeing the world. They maybe have an opportunity to argue with each other a bit and learn a little about the different perspectives, all of which you know need to be brought to bear in order to to you know secure the elephant that is industrial security. Right, and we talk a lot about IT and OT people on this show. Um, physical security people. Are, are we literally referring to security guards? Yeah, I mean, security guards or the managers that are managing the security guards or putting the, the policies together for the security guards. I mean, there are two ways. I mean, all, all cyber attacks are information. There's only two ways information can flow, online and offline. Now, we talk a lot about the online, the networks, the Wi-Fi, the cables, the... Uh, you know, any way that bits can flow sort of continuously. Offline communications are physical. It's carrying a USB drive in your pocket. It's carrying a laptop into the site. It's, you know, if you don't have a fence, it's walking into the site and plugging your laptop into the nearest network port and attacking whatever you wish. Offline flows are physical flows of information the 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 attack information the you know the laptop that you're using to attack the site is physically carried into the site physical security is essential to cybersecurity and often a lot of the the physical security infrastructure like the uh, the systems we use to badge through doors or the uh, the monitoring systems they're often exposed to attack themselves and if you can attack the physical protection systems. Now you can physically walk into the site, you know, do nasties. It's the 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 two have to work together, right? And I can see that uh, the physical security people have an important role to play. I'm wondering if they need to be so educated on these issues if they're going through trainings. Um, is there a contingent of people who work security? who do it specifically for industrial systems industry, as in, are these manufacturing plants, power plants, whatever, are these 
sites hiring security guards in the way that any other industry would, or are they hiring specifically security guards with experience in this field and training in this field? That's a good question. I'm not sure I I know the answer specifically. Um, What I do know is that when... uh, when organizations, you know, when, when I meet, when I go to, 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 to meet with a, a, uh, an organization and, uh, you know, talk about security and talk about where, you know, I work for Waterfall, where some of Waterfall's products might uh, make sense in a security architecture. Um, you know, it, they may not be involved in the first meeting, but I do from time to time run into physical security people. And it's because of this connection. So I don't know that there's a, a, a specialization, but once you are hired into an industrial facility, um, you know, physical security is essential to cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is essential to modern physical security. You know, break into the access system and you can turn it off. So um, the, the, the two functions have to work together. And I do see that, uh, you know, it, it seems perfectly sensible to me that you would send some of the physical security people to cybersecurity training to come up to speed on why they need to cooperate with the cybersecurity people and how the cybersecurity people might add value to the physical security equation. It's all very interesting that you have this this sort of powerful 400-pound training exercise. Can I ask you, How's it going? I mean, what industries are calling on you? You know, in those industries, what roles and responsibilities are calling on you? What, who's asking for, for this kind of training? Yeah, just one comment, though, on the 400 pounds. That's what we brought here. Uh, when we actually bring our industrial edition kits, it's about 1,000 pounds. So it's a totally different number. Still sort of crazy traveling with that uh, through the airlines. But um, the call on, it's, it's a variety of industries. What, what seems to happen, though, is it happens when there's some kind of a warning sign out there, right? So something occurs in, in some vertical, and then that, that call-on happens. Um, but now, let's say, oh, here we fast forward. We're, we're coming to the end of, um, of the 2010s, which is sort of crazy. Uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting feedback from really any of the critical infrastructures where they're cyber-physical, right? And, and I'm actually finally encouraged by that. I mean, there's been some challenges uh, over the past few years where maybe it was only electric sector or maybe it was a spattering of the water sector or maybe it was oil and gas or actually just oil and then gas. And, you know, and so then you had these areas that were interested or concerned or maybe individual government entities, right, or the auditors or the regulators that were out there. But I'm starting to see more of that uh, across every industry. Why do I think that's happening? Personally... I think it's happening because there's more awareness uh, that these are risks, right? You can't really just cover your eyes to it. Things are really happening. Um, I think there's insurance carriers that are, that are providing more guidance to do these things. I think um, that as we are able to educate uh, more university students, uh, such as through the Department of Energy Cyber Force competition, I mean, we're going to have 105 universities coming up here later on in the year those students are going to be asking questions right as they come out and they're also prepared to help more right as you want to go and defend the environments so the customers are are a combination i'm happy to say of really what i had hoped for back in 2010 professionals 
universities and community colleges, and I'm even happy to say that it looks like we're going to start having a solution at the high school level. Um, I'd love to go a little bit deeper into middle school, um, but you know, the reality is the only answer or the only way this is going to happen, even for the middle school and high schools, is we actually need help from professional organizations. Um, you know, not that I want to have any, any too much of a, a commercialized response here, but it would be, does anybody want to donate any money to try to get some of these high schools and middle schools to have some equipment? Because they need some help, and it would be really helpful for that. So, Matthew, we like to leave our guests with the last word. I keep hearing about a shortage of 300,000 security professionals in the USA alone and something like 3 million worldwide. It looks like your future is bright. What message would you like to leave with our listeners? That, that's an interesting number. Back in 2010, I was saying 3 million. You know, back then, that's how I started Saibati in the first place. But here's something that's really cool, and the only reason I'm even doing this today. If we learn how to defend critical infrastructure and defend these amazing systems we've built over the past 100 years, if we have more people to understand cyber-physical and how they're architected, um, and we have this pipeline of people, not only should we be able to defend what we have today, but it should lead, and this is why I changed my title to executive inventor, it should lead to more inventions for the future. You give the power to people to be able to understand how energy does work for you through these cyber-physical systems. And as long as we do it securely through the Internet of Things, which, again, there's concern there, sure, but as long as we can have that workforce that is thinking about it from that perspective, we should have an amazing, inventive future. And that's what excites and compels me. Okay. That was your interview with Matthew Lou Allen. I'd like to thank him for sitting down with you, and I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me today. Always a pleasure, and uh, we'll catch you next time. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.